welcome to the Beltway Outsiders podcast. I am your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer and columnist for the Conservative Institute, where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. This week, I had two columns that touched on COVID-19 or the coronavirus. The first one talked about how you needed to be prepared and not scared regarding this virus and just talked through some basic things where the media has engaged in a lot of scaremongering. It doesn't need you mean you need to be scared, but rather be prepared. And I walked through a few areas where it's easy to get prepared for this. The second column covered why government bureaucrats are to blame on why we've seen so many delays in testing, specifically. There were some turf wars between the FDA and the CDC, and those led to us squandering the lead we gave to the virus early on when we cut off travel to and from China back in January, and why the CDC and the FDA, specifically in this case, squandered that lead, and we're in the situation we are right now where we're basically flying blind, not knowing how prevalent this virus is across the nation. And then finally, in the newsletter, I talked about all of the potential economic impacts and fallouts of this virus on the U.S. economy. So if any of that interests you now or after the show, you can sign up and get it all in your email inbox at thebeltwayoutsiders.com. It's just the easiest way to get my columns and analysis to you, so make sure to sign up for that and you'll get everything. And finally, if you like what you hear here or enjoy my written work, make sure to subscribe and review this podcast. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Those five-star reviews help listeners and readers like you find me in the iTunes algorithm, and I look forward to reading those reviews that you guys are sending in. All right, so we're going to jump into this week's show from quarantine this week because my work, as I mentioned in the newsletter, got cleared out towards the last two days of the week. So Thursday and Friday, we all got kicked out of the building while they did a deep cleaning because there was a secondary infection, which made it like two or three steps from Kevin Bacon, if you like playing that game. We are two to three, two to three degrees removed from Kevin Bacon from a potential uh, contamination or somebody being infected by it. I haven't heard if anybody in the actual office has it, but they're going through a deep cleaning right now. So while everybody was canceling everything on this week, I got to sit in quarantine early, grab the groceries early, and sit back and watch the world shut down. So this week we're going to talk about that. Specifically, we're going to talk about some updates to COVID-19 or the coronavirus, talk about sort of where things stand and where you can sort of where to look at the news and the data that we have now and how you can project that moving forward. Obviously, this is a fast-moving situation. There's always news, new things popping up all the time. In fact, there were news breaking while I'm sitting here recording this. So it's one of those things where I'll tell you, you know, when I'm recording and what you need to know about that. But it, there are ways where you can look at the data and sort of think about how to move forward. The other thing that happened tonight was the Democratic debate that was originally going to be set in Phoenix, Arizona, but because of the outbreak of the coronavirus, it got moved to the Washington, D.C. studios of CNN, where they held it with no audience, three moderators, and just Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. It was, since this was the first one where it was just two people, it was a very interesting debate. It was probably the best one because, for the most part, the moderators actually let them talk. So from that aspect, you actually got to see the differences between Biden and Sanders come out 
in all their color. And I've got a column coming out tomorrow. I'm recording this late Sunday night, so it'll be out sometime Monday talking about one of the points that Bernie Sanders brought up, and we'll cover that in that section of the show. So that's the roadmap for today, and we'll jump right in here. So the latest on the coronavirus outbreak and where we stand tonight, as I'm recording at right now, it's 10.50 p.m. Central Time. Right now, there are approximately 6,400 dead worldwide from this virus. In the U.S. specifically, there are a total of around 3,400 cases and 65 people have died so far. The big news, the latest forms of big news on this front are the CDC is now recommending no gatherings of 50 or more people for now. You have the Federal Reserve who has slashed interest rates to near zero. So if you're looking to buy a house or you know get a car or anything that requires an interest rate, you might want to look into either refinancing or getting a loan right now while they're this low. You have New York City schools and restaurants and bars. They're all closing. That's also attempting to happen in Nashville, where I'm from, where they're trying to shut down Broadway. They're meeting some resistance from the restaurants there, but I imagine that you will see either the governor or some the mayor will do something along the lines to get that to actually happen. And California told its residents, 65 and older, that they needed to stay home. And you're seeing more and more states come up here, add restrictions, both to the elderly and to everyone in general. Today also saw a big jump in deaths out of Italy, where they're looking more and more like they may have an outright national crisis on their hands of the likes they have never seen because their hospitals are just flat out overwhelmed. We'll get into a little bit here later. And then there was one of the top U.S. officials said that Americans need to be prepared to hunker down. So those are the latest updates. I'm pulling those mainly from the New York Times. They have a very good updater and tracker where they dump all the latest information. I'll link to it in the show notes where you can grab it, or you can just Google coronavirus, New York Times, and their updated thing should pop up. You may get hit by by a paywall. In that case, either view it in private mode or just get another browser. But it is pretty good in updating you and keeping you with sort of a quick bullet list of all the latest information that's happened across the United States. So this really was the week where everything shut down. And I I don't know, you've probably seen everything from the NBA, March Madness. It was probably going to affect the NFL here as they're opening up their new league season and people start signing new free agents, getting ready for the draft. All of that's coming up. So every sports league from golf to football to everything in between has been affected. If you jump in, look at stuff like betting apps, There's practically nothing to bet on right now. The last time I checked one of them, I saw a few UFC fights were on there. There was some random hockey that you could bet on over in Russia. And I think, and I'm not sure about this because I never saw it, but a friend said that he saw some NASCAR bets that you could place. But other than that, everything has been shut down on the sporting events front. No one is doing anything or going anywhere. And I know you've seen videos and pictures of people out in bars celebrating St. Patrick's Day. I really think that's the end of what you're going to see there as governments really crack down. When you have the CDC here saying no gatherings of 50 or more for now, 
that is really going to hurt the ability of a lot of these businesses to thrive because they're not going to be able to open up to a ton of customers. Because even if you just have, you have a couple, you have, you know, just have people who come in as a couple, so that's two people, that's only going to be about 25 tables. If you've got 50 or more, and it's probably going to be less if you're counting the staff. So you're really cutting down on what these businesses and restaurants can do. And I think you're just going to see a lot of them shut down for a little while because their expenses are just going to flat out outweigh any of the revenue they're going to bring in during that time. So it's just everything. Sports, large events, you're seeing concerts and stuff cancel. Churches are having to cancel their weekend services. No, over in Rome, they're canceling masses. So is all of this drastic? Yes, this is absolutely drastic. I don't I cannot think of anything in recent modern history to compare this to. It's certainly nothing in my lifetime. And you're probably going to have to go back to something along the lines of World War II, where everything was, where you had rations in place, curfews, and all that sorts of things. You're you're really having to go back to that time to see a moment in time where the United States is trying to quarantine its people and fight a disease outbreak in this manner. We did not go after swine flu or H1N1 to this extent, although if you look at the numbers, you would probably ask why didn't we? Just because there were around 60.8 million cases in the United States alone, so we probably should have done this in order to stop the spread of that across the United States, because that took a little over a year to work through our system. But is all of this needed in order to stop this? I would also say absolutely Yes, because if we over-prepare in there for this, that's fine. It's when you get with some of these viruses, it's the the bad situations is when you're underprepared. So it's better to over-prepare for this and ensure that the healthcare system is able to process everyone who can and may get sick from this than letting your healthcare system get overrun. And right now, I think there are two ways that you can think about what's happening so far. Because, like my column said this week, we're really flying blind so far. We're flying blind and if you look at our testing. The point that I keep hounding over and over again is that we have not done sufficient testing of people who are exhibiting, at a minimum, flu-like symptoms. There are a couple of watchdog groups who are saying that we've seen an uptick recently of people who are going into doctor's offices or emergency rooms who are exhibiting flu-like symptoms, but they're testing negative for flu. And if you look at the positive flu test, we hit peak flu at some point in January or February. So we're outside of the peak time for flu right now in the United States and moving into the part of the year when it's on a downtick. So this is a point in time where people are exhibiting these flu-like symptoms, but we're not getting, we're not testing to see whether or not they have the coronavirus. So you have this limited testing, and that if you're if you're limited like this, you have to assume on some level that the spread of the virus is more widespread than you believe by the positive and negative numbers that we have so far. Right now, we've tested around 28,000 people the last I checked. And so out of that, you have 6,400 who have tested positive out of that. So that's a pretty significant number overall. 
Um, and if you're seeing this sort of uptick, it's due to the fact that we're finally getting these tests out and open in society and getting the numbers that we need. And so you have to assume on some level that the virus is more widespread than you think. The flip side to this is that if the virus is more widespread, we should also be seeing more hospitalizations by people exhibiting flu-like symptoms. So even if it's more widespread, you should be seeing, if you're not even if you're not testing it, people should be needing medical attention and care if it is more widespread in doctors' offices, in hospitals and other places because around 15 to 20% of the overall of people who get infected require some form of hospitalization. Not, you know, intensive care or anything, but just overall they need hospitalization and continuous care to get past this virus. So if you're not seeing that in the hospitals, then that might suggest that the virus is, even though we haven't tested as much, that it may not be as widespread as we might fear, as the worst case scenarios may fear. So you have these two competing issues here where we know we're flying blind to some extent just because we don't have the positive and negative tests to tell us what the full scope of the spread of this virus is. But you can look at other metrics, things like hospitalizations and other things, and I haven't seen strong data on that front to suggest that we're seeing hospitals overwhelmed with people who have these symptoms but haven't tested one way or another for it. So that's something to watch moving forward. Now, it could be widespread and people just could, aren't going to get treated. That could be one scenario. But you have these two areas where people, if they do have it and it is widespread, they should be seeking out some form of care. And because you're not seeing that, that can either happen because the virus isn't as widespread or this strain is weaker than the United States than it is in some of these other countries. So... We're not seeing that so far. There's not evidence for it. I haven't seen the data. So just keep those thing, two things in mind because if the virus is widespread but it's not impact, impacted your overall hospital bed load where people aren't filling up hospitals and doctor's office, you know, that tells you that maybe it's not as widespread as you might believe. And, of course, this can all change. You can look at Italy where they are testing and finding they have not, not just finding cases, they have new cases every day. As I mentioned at the top, they mentioned just in the last 24 hours, and this will change by the time you listen to this, but in, on Sunday when they announced it, they said that 368 people had died within a 24-hour period. They had nearly 3,600 new cases, and they're closing in on 25,000 cases overall with close with a little over 1,800 deaths. So this is approaching not just a pandemic, but an endemic level for Italy, where it is challenging not just their healthcare system, but it is really and truly wiping out a older population there. Because if you're above a certain age there, the death rate with this disease there is around 15%. And then that may have changed since the last time I checked, but that is far higher than the overall global rate when you're looking at something around 1%, maybe even 3.4% at the highest. That is astronomically high for a disease of this nature. Now, when you're looking at Italy, obviously the United States is different. We cut off travel to and from China early on, 
and now we've cut off travel to and from Europe. I'm glad the president in his second speech added the UK and Ireland to that list because you just have to cut them all off. In the United Kingdom, they're not taking the steps necessary to slow the spread of this virus. Their their goal right now is just let it hit in their populace, let them flood into the hospitals, and deal with it all up front. Now, whether or not that's a good idea or not, I do not know. But we're going to find out. They're taking a much, they're taking the exact opposite approach than what the United States is doing. And they may decide to change that if they get overwhelmed. A lot of other these other European countries have gotten overwhelmed and have not been able to deal with all of the inflow into their healthcare systems. And it's worth noting that all these healthcare systems that are getting overwhelmed are usually single payer run by the government. These are Bernie Sanders style systems and they're being overwhelmed by this virus. So the United States is different from all of these. We're pushing and trying to get to a point where we match the, the overall success of, North, of South Korea, I should say, where they are, in the last three or four days, they've seen the number of new cases drop slowly but steadily. So it looks and appears like they are getting this under control. And it's finally, they've hit the peak in their country and it's finally dropping. And if that's the case, there's promise for the United States because we've been lagging somewhat on this front too and following a trajectory that's a little bit closer to them. And part of that reason is because we controlled our borders and closed off all this travel to prevent these people from coming in who had these diseases. So even though testing is still lagging, we still needed to get it caught up to know the full scope because you just you don't want to be blind in these situations. And the sooner that testing gets up to speed, the better. We've got to identify those who are affected and then quarantine them immediately because if you're able to prevent them from infecting anyone else in the population, you can severely stop this thing from spreading everywhere else. There was a story out of Reuters specifically out of South Korea, where they were talking about how they had the first 30 cases in the country, they had them under control. They knew everyone these people had interacted with. They were able to track those people and then stop the spread of it with the first 30 patients. The problem came from patient 31. And this woman was from Wuhan, China. She traveled to South Korea and the doctors wanted her to get tested. They wanted to stick her in a hospital. She did not comply. She left. She ended up attending the church that everyone said is where the main infection came from. She went there. She went there twice, actually. At another point, she left the hospital and visited a friend at a buffet where they stayed for a couple of hours. And she did a bunch of other things where she exposed many other people to this virus. And researchers in South Korea believe that this one woman is the reason why 80% of all of the people infected in South Korea got this virus. One person infected 80% of the cases in South Korea, which is astonishing just through sheer volume. So that's why you're seeing these measures being taken place in the United States. We're trying to prevent these patient 31s from wandering around the country and infecting Affecting everyone else because that creates bad outcomes for everyone else in the nation. And we need to get this all cleared up soon. So this is a hard time economically. You can't have all this shutdown happening all the same time without economic pain. 
this is something that, I mean, just tonight, MGM Resorts in Las Vegas said that they were canceling all form. They were just shutting down, basically, in Las Vegas. It was um, MGM and Wynn Resorts, both of them. They're just shutting down in Las Vegas overall. And you probably will see some other casinos and resorts in Las Vegas shut down, too, because there's no business. People are not going to these places, and these casinos and hotels and resorts can't can't keep up with all of the demands that are being made to keep people safe. So they're shutting down. You're seeing also United Airlines announced tonight that they were cutting their all of their routes down by 50%. They're completely cutting down all of their flights down by half, for, at least for the next few months. And they're expecting in the summer months, if, if this clears up, and they're hopeful on that front, that even if this clears up, even in the summer months, they're expecting to be down 20 to 30% overall and having to reduce the number of flights that they're making. So between that and all the salary cuts that are taking at their board of directors and their CEO and everything else, they are hurting really bad. And you're going to probably see more of this from all the other airlines. And so everyone is having to cut back and figure out how they're going to survive in this environment where growth is slow and people are not, because people are staying at home, they're not able to purchase these services. They may be swamping places like Walmart, Kroger, and all these other grocery stores who have increased demand and people are buying, I think the president said like five times what they normally buy, even at Christmas. So that's happening, but they're not purchasing and sending money to these other organizations, restaurants, airlines, resorts, hotels, vacations, tourism. So if any of these things are in a city that you're in, these are places they're going to be hurt for at least the next month or two because people are going to hunker down for a minimum the next two weeks. And then even if it clears up within, it'll be a slow walk back to any kind of recovery. So we need to get this virus cleared up soon or the economic effects will ripple for some time. As I was talking about in the newsletter this week, the economic impacts to this could be quite drastic because you're talking about all these corporations that have strong forms of debt, just deep forms of debt that they've run up over the past decade or so since the Great Recession. And if they're not able to make revenue, they're going to go under on some of this debt. So... That's why you're seeing things like um, their federal interest, the Federal Reserve cutting interest rates down to nearly zero, and they're pumping in quantitative easing into the market again in order to prevent a credit crunch like what happened in 2008, because that could happen again if all of these businesses start going under. And there are a few stories you can find here and there like a patio furniture place I've seen has said that they're going bankrupt because they could not keep their bills. Their supply lines to China have been disrupted to the point where they couldn't able to fix it, and so now they're bankrupt because they can't make any product, and that means they've run out of the ability to make money. So these things are big issues looming for a lot of these companies, especially if they have supply lines in China. They have to figure out a way to survive in the intermediate term because they know that they're going to be taking financial losses during this period of time. And it could be worse in past times. You were relying on totally your physical stores to try and make up all of the losses. Now you have the internet where people can purchase online and try to offset some of this. So you may see that 
you may see a swing. If people switch their purchasing from all physical to all online from this time, you could see just a redirection of consumerism spending, and that could help offset all the losses you're going to see in some of these other S sectors. But these other areas are still going to be hurting, and they need to be able to make it through this time, which is why you're seeing everybody try to help all the people who are employed in these tourism sectors and are now effectively out of jobs, try to help them through this period of time. This is all very good, but it's going to be hard for some of these people in the short term, especially. There are lots of economic variables at play right now that can and will shift before all these broader impacts are felt. So this could be a big thing. This could be a non-event. It just depends on how fast this gets solved. If it's a fast thing, you won't see as big impacts. If it's a long, drawn-out deal, like the CDC is saying they want to keep this ban on groups of 50 in place for eight weeks, so two months. If it's something like that, the economic impacts will be felt really hard. So there are a lot of variables at play here, and watching how these play out will determine what's going to happen this year, whether or not we actually hit a recession, or if this is just a bear market in the stock market, and things will eventually bounce back, both in the markets and the economy. This can go either way, but the the tender there the for a fire or an explosion in the economy where it just goes across everything is there. So everyone's trying to avoid that by easing the path to that and drawing out the runway that it takes to get there so that we don't hit that point. So that's why you're seeing all these movements by the Federal Reserve. You're seeing at some point on Monday or Tuesday, you're going to see the House and Senate send a bill to Donald Trump that's going to send in tax relief, probably in the form of payroll and other things that are going to attempt to help people out here. So there's a lot of things that are on the way that will hopefully ease this for people who are in the middle of this, and hopefully that will help pave the way for these companies to survive long term. So that's the broad overview of where we are, just sort of economically. Hopefully we see some of this get offset by some of these things being passed by Congress, the president, and in online shopping, but all of that's unknown for now. Uh, when we come back from the break, we'll move into focusing from this just as a broad issue in America to how it impacted the Democratic debate that happened tonight. All right, we're back talking about the Democratic primary, Biden versus Bernie. This was the big debate where you finally had just two people on the stage and really the two main people representing the two factions of the current Democratic Party with Biden representing the establishment wing, the more moderate lane of the party, and Bernie Sanders representing the insurgent Democratic Socialists. And coming into this debate, Bernie Sanders really had to land a knockout punch on Joe Biden if he wanted to win this race. And after watching that debate, that didn't happen at any point. The primary at this point is basically over. Joe Biden is sitting at around 60% in the national polls. He's going to lap up Bernie Sanders in a lot of these states and may even shut him out, even though it's a proportional system, because Bernie is only sitting at 30% nationally and sometimes a lot lower in some of these other states. He had to land that knockout blow, and the closest the closest he really came during this was a back-and-forth over Joe Biden's voting record on various bills, 
Bernie positions himself as sort of the ideological purist and as and against the more pragmatic or politician like Joe Biden who was always willing to cut a deal in order to get a bill through. So that were the that was really the main divide in this debate. Now obviously this was a different kind of debate because they were both separated by 6 feet according to CDC guidelines that was a first you also had no audience which is a first for this debate so they were just in a tv studio with three moderators and the two of them talking back and forth and because it was just the two of them once the moderators realized that there was no reason to stop them and allowed far more interaction between biden and bernie on a lot of these issues in previous debates you just had a lot of people yelling at each other in fact the very last debate you had all of these candidates on stage most of whom we all know didn't stand a chance but who were still on the stage eating up a lot of time and in reality the divide was between biden and bernie Mo Alethi is a Democrat who, and I think is a Democrat strategist. He's sometimes on CNN and a couple of these other cable news networks, and I like him a lot. He said that this. He said on Twitter that the difference on the difference between these two. He said Biden on the coronavirus went for instant solutions, riding on relying on crisis management style leadership, and Bernie spent his time going trying to go back to his his main horse of Medicare for All to answer everything. And it was a difference of leadership and ideology. And I think that's the best way to frame this debate. I didn't see anybody else provide a more clear explanation of what happened on the debate stage. It really was pragmatic leadership in Biden versus ideology. Because in... Bernie, he always tries to present himself as this ideologically pure person, this democratic socialist who's taken all these stances on all these bills over time, and he's always on the right side of history. It doesn't matter if he doesn't have a single legislative accomplishment to his name. Most of the time, he spent all his time in the Senate and the House just voting against various forms of legislation, so he hasn't actually done or accomplished anything but he presents himself as ideologically pure when you compare to Biden, who often tried to mix it up in the legislature, in the Senate, by trying to help get different forms of legislation through. So one of these moments where you saw this come out pretty clearly was over the coronavirus, because that was the first section of this debate. Bernie kept harping on the fact that he could fi- this could be fixed if you had Medicare for All in place and people could get care and they didn't have to pay for it. Biden talked about this being a national emergency and how we needed to marshal resources together to fix this. And then, and this was really where the hit started to come in between the two of them, Biden pointed out that Italy is a single-payer system and their system has failed to slow this virus. And the same is also true of China, which is important because Bernie Sanders would come around and talk about how great some of the things China has done. It was a bizarre segment. And on the other side, you have Bernie pushing ideology, specifically Medicare for All and democratic socialism, as the savior of this situation. Biden continually provided pragmatic answers, and he would suggest sometimes that he agreed with sort of what Bernie was saying, but that 
it still came back to having to provide a, situ- a solution to people in the situation that they had right now. And so that's why it always seemed in the debate like what Biden, anything Biden said or suggested was never enough for Bernie Sanders because the solutions that Biden would have or the plans that Biden would have, because he knew he could probably get them passed, were not ideologically pure. They were not pure socialist. They were not democratic socialist. They were never big enough. So it always looked like Biden, the way Bernie painted him, was caving to some form of special interests. In a way, it's sort of the way Bernie tried sort of frame this, it was Biden arguing with his conscience that in his heart, Biden was admitting that Bernie was right on all these issues, but he was arguing against it because he didn't want to take the steps to implement it. And whether or not that he succeeded in that, I'll let you be the judge. I don't think he succeeded as well as he did, primarily because Bernie Sanders, while he can paint himself as being pure in all these ways, doesn't have a single accomplishment to his name. There's a reason why he can't win a lot of these various demographics in the Democratic Party, because he's never been there and done anything for any of them. He can't point to a single accomplishment in either the House or the Senate. So if you but what is what is really happening here is that it's not really about Bernie Sanders trying to win. Because he was so ideological in this debate, what that meant is that he never at any point appeared like he was trying to win the debate. Everyone knew coming in that Bernie had to land a knockout blow on Biden and make him look incompetent on the stage. And that didn't happen. What instead happened is Bernie appeared to be trying to pull Biden to the left on the stage of all these issues and make him appear in agreement with Bernie Sanders on all these key points, even though he wouldn't endorse any of Bernie's key legislative plans. So in my mind, so what this really does is it hurts Biden in the general election because he said some things in this debate that Trump and the campaign are just going to cut together in a attack ad and just run it straight up. You don't even have to, you know, be stealthy in the edits. You just run the segment, say, this is what Joe Biden believes. He said it in a debate. Bernie Sanders said this too. So that's going to hurt Biden in a general election because he's you have Bernie over here pulling him ever further to the left. And it, it appears Sanders did this because he had no intention of trying to win. There is a part of Sanders that appeared in this debate like he knew he was going to lose. So he was going to do everything in his power to pull Joe Biden over to his side. And all the attacks seem shaped at trying to do exactly that. There were no direct hard shots at Biden, but they all pulled Biden further to the left. And for me, one of the key inflection points, just overall, of showing the two sides and what they represented on this, was when Bernie Sanders spent his time spent defending dictatorships again. So the way the debate moderators set it up, they asked Bernie Sanders about his time, his, his previous times, you know, in 60 Minutes and elsewhere where he has defended Fidel Castro and the communist Cuban regime. And, you know, Bernie went into his usual spiel where 
he talks about how the you he doesn't he doesn't condone any form of authoritarianism, but he does see these bright spots. Specifically in Cuba, he points to the literacy programs there. Now, if any as anyone who knows anyone about Cuban history knows, Cuba was not an illiterate country prior to Fidel Castro. It wasn't completely literate, but it also wasn't illiterate. In fact, it was considered one of the best Latin American countries in South America overall, in South or Central America. So Castro came in and just truly ruined that entire island. But of course, Bernie, because he defends every form of socialist regime out there, has to find a bright spot that Americans can look at and pull. And the key points for all American socialists when it comes to Cuba is they've always pointed to two things, the healthcare system and the literacy program instituted by Castro. Both of them are just flat-out lies because you have, you're just teaching people to read propaganda from the government. So that's always just a messy scenario. But what was different about tonight with Bernie Sanders, it's not just that he defended Cuba, it's what he used to defend his stance on Cuba. He turned around and said at one point that it's not just that there's this literacy program, but we can find these bright spots everywhere, including in places like China. And a thing he pointed to in China was that they had lifted millions of people out of extreme poverty and that that was an absolute good thing. Now, I would agree. On an absolute basis, getting those people out of poverty, yeah, that's a good thing. But the way China did it, they did not do it in a way you would want any country ever to emulate. I mean, the first part that you have with China is you have the Cultural Revolution, which some estimates say that you know Mao killed up to 8 million people. Other estimates place it a little lower than that, in the 2 to 3 million range. But they had another 100 million people who were persecuted in that same time. So you are murdering and persecuting people into submission. And if you get to the point where, in you know, the last 25, 30 years, where China has actually made economic progress, it's because they've built off the back of American trade and capitalist reforms, where they opened up to some free market reforms while still maintaining basically a police state presence in their people's lives. So there is nothing here to celebrate if you're a socialist like Bernie Sanders. There's truly nothing to celebrate here. Because if you're looking at the actual socialist reforms that China has done in the past, it led to millions of deaths. If you're looking at the part where they pull people out of extreme poverty, you're looking at a form of really corrupt police state capitalism that did it. So there's nothing really to praise here. And yet he does that because he wants, to, he wants as a democratic socialist, to claim that because all these safety nets are in place, there's something good to find in the authoritarianism of China. So that was one of the more bizarre instances in there. And Biden, of course, naturally pivoted and pointed out all the brutality, how millions have died and were enslaved. But Bernie kept coming back and pointing out to how this is just good because you're pulling all these people out of poverty. And, you know, it's just bizarre because, like I said, on the one hand, on the socialist part, you've got people dying or being persecuted or you have some form of corrupt capitalism pulling people out of this this poverty. It's just weird because right now in the United States, you've got this coronavirus running rampant 
across the potentially rampant. It's definitely went across China and it's going through Italy. And we're afraid that it's going to do the same here. But you've got this virus here and no one in their right mind is defending China. Absolutely no one. And then you have Bernie Sanders going a full Leroy Jenkins running full head into this room to defend communist China. It is without question one of the more bizarre instances in a debate I've seen, and it's why Bernie Sanders should lose this. And I know he's well-liked by a lot of people, but when you're doing things like this, when you're so ideologically driven that you have to defend those on your side, including places like Cuba or China, you've really lost the plot at that point. You've lost your mind, more specifically, but you've lost the plot at all, because that is something in America that no one should do. So, like I said, at this point, it doesn't really matter because the race is over. This could come back again because you have the general election and Trump's going to use a lot of these answers where Bernie Sanders was pulling Joe Biden further and further to the left. And the more you can paint Joe Biden as a Bernie Sanders extremist, the easier it is to defeat him. But as I said, unless this race, this primary race is over, Bernie Sanders' only real chance here is if, literally, if just Joe Biden catches the coronavirus or has some other health issue where people decide, okay, well, we can't vote for him anymore. Who's next? And even then, I don't think they'll give it to Bernie Sanders because the Democratic establishment cannot stand Bernie Sanders. There's actually a documentary going around right now where Hillary Clinton's latest documentary, and she has this one segment where they ask her about Bernie Sanders. And she blasts him. She talks about how no one likes him, how he's never done anything in his life that's of anything of note, and how he was just a pest on the campaign trail. She goes at him with both guns blazing. If you're on the right, like I am, it's really hilarious because on the one hand, you don't really care because she struggled to beat him. And on the other hand, you like watching a socialist go down in flames. So it's fun to watch the bickering, but... On the other hand, she didn't actually say anything that was false because no one in the Democratic establishment likes Bernie Sanders. And so if you're on the left or you're voting in the Democratic Party and you don't like what the establishment is doing, Bernie really is your guy. And so I understand why somebody who doesn't like the Democratic establishment might stick with Bernie just because they don't like the direction of the party overall. But in any event, this one is it's basically over. Unless you see some kind of random black swan type of event where, one, where Biden gets sick, catches the coronavirus, or anything like that, where there's some kind of health scare, that is literally the only thing at this point I think that could change the direction of this primary race. Otherwise, it's basically over. The only interesting thing from this debate that Biden said was that his next vice president will be a woman. And that means the list that you're looking at right now is probably going to be Kamala Harris, Amy Klobuchar, or Stacey Abrams. And you might remember Kamala and Klobuchar, they both ran for president in the primaries. Stacey Abrams was the... um, She ran for governor in the state of Georgia and lost nearly. I already forgot the guy's name that she lost to, but she, uh, she she rose really high in national prominence along with Beto O'Rourke during that time. Some people even thought she was going to run for president because she had such a high profile there for a moment. But those are the names. 
if you go back early on into the primary season, Joe Biden even floated the possibility then that Stacey Abrams could be in his vice presidential slot. I think that would be a big mistake, primarily because Abrams is part of the the far left part of the party that I don't see being able to win a national election just because some of her beliefs are like Bernie's. They absolutely turn people off. And if you're Joe Biden trying to... In, you know, reassure people that you don't represent that part of the party and you're just a moderate looking to return things to normal, you don't bring somebody on like that on. Which means he's most likely going to choose Kamala Harris. I think that's just flat out the most likely scenario here. She fits. Her credentials are perfect for this race. She fits what Biden needs to offset all of his weaknesses. And she just basically fits the profile of what you would want in a vice presidential candidate at this stage. I think the actual best option for Biden would actually be Cory Booker, senator out of New Jersey. He was also running. He was never able to gain any real traction in the primaries. I think that's primarily because Pete Buttigieg took his spot in this race. If you don't have somebody like Pete Buttigieg, I think Cory Booker steps into that role because he's kind of the same kind of candidate where he's very optimistic and paints a very optimistic of the future and is always looking forward. He's younger, and he kind of did that when he was mayor of Newark. He uh, he has, he, I've always thought he was a little bit more of a lightweight when you're talking about policy-wise, but when you're actually just talking about pure political talent, Booker has always had that largely, especially on a retail setting where he's just interacting with people, he's gold when he does that. And it always amazed me that he was never able to catch on in a place like Iowa where people who do that are really, really good. And I really just think it's because Pete Buttigieg stole his place in this race. And if he doesn't run, you probably see Cory Booker step into that role. Cory Booker would be the best bet, I think, for Biden just because he actually probably offsets all of Biden's charismatic problems where he's not able to relate well with people just because he's so old. Booker basically covers that up entirely and he don't have that problem anymore. Kamala has the right resume. She's not always good dealing and interacting with people one-on-one. If you get her prepared where she's dealing with a speech or something like that, she's, she's a classic prosecutor in this sense where if she's prepared, she's got her notes and everything's lined up where she's got her case and she's ready to present it, she's great and she's fantastic. But if you get her out where she's having to talk on her feet or things are shifting out from under her, she's not as good. And that's where I think when you're dealing with a race that has somebody like Donald Trump, being able to be quick on your feet and react in the moment is good. And I think Booker would have filled that role better, especially when you were talking about a debate with Mike Pence. There's just a nice... There's a better uh, difference. That's not the right word. I can't think of the word that I want to use for that. But there's Booker brings out the differences between a Biden campaign and a Trump campaign in a vice presidential debate a little bit better in my mind. But we'll see. Biden said that his vice president's going to be a woman. So like I said, the three that he's likely going to pick are Kamala Harris, Amy Klobuchar, Stacey Abrams. Those are all the candidates that have been floated out there. I don't I'd be shocked if he went outside that list, primarily because there's not many other people who would fit all the requirements that it sounds like he's trying to fulfill. So though that's really the list so far. I think it's one of those three. So you, if you watch betting markets, you'll probably see all that jump out to there as well. 
But, you know, apart from that, the race is over. So you're going to see Biden probably start floating out those vice presidential slots here soon and start sending out trial balloons to see who would be the best fit. That's all I've got for today's show. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the contact information in the show notes, or feel free to hit me up on Twitter, at DevonCI. You can look for my next columns to come out on Mondays and Fridays at the Conservative Institute, and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning. Make sure to sign up for that, and you will get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I am your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I'll see you guys in the next episode.